Hello and welcome back to Cuban Serenade, a podcast series exploring the history of Cuban music in Canada. We are Freddy Monasterio and Karen Duwinski. In our first episode, we introduce you to Chicho Valle, the Cuban band leader who became really popular in the Toronto and area hotel dance floors and airwaves, working with CBC from 1940s until the late 1970s. Chicho Valle and Los Cubanos, the name of his band, contain precisely one Cuban, him. After Chicho died in 1984, Cuban music in Toronto entered a period we call Cuban music without Cubans. In the 1980s and 1990s, there was a growing interest in music from other parts of the world, with different instruments and sounds. World music had arrived on the scene, a term that nobody likes much, but everybody uses. In part one of this episode, we'll see how world music came to Toronto. In future episodes, we'll look at other parts of the country. We'll meet some important figures behind the scenes and on stage who helped open the door to new sounds and find venues for new audiences. We'll learn how beer company rivalries helped usher in an era of exciting new rhythms in Toronto and how innovative promoters and journalists sought out audiences and musical inspiration from the city's growing immigrant communities, particularly from Latin America, the Caribbean, and Africa. We'll see how Queen Street West became, for a time, the place to be in the city if you wanted to hear the results of all this cultural mixing. We'll hear about Parachute Club, a hugely popular Canadian band that brought world music sounds to mainstream audiences and airwaves. Latin American and Cuban rhythms were everywhere in this chapter of Toronto's musical history, but there was barely, as far as we've learned, an actual Cuban to be found until a couple of decades later. In this episode, we're going to speak to music promoter and programmer Derek Andrews, drummer and academic Vince Macarone, journalist Nick Jennings, singer and activist Lorraine Segato, and Cuban-Canadian street poet and hip-hop artist Tomari. Derek Andrews is a veteran music promoter and producer in Toronto, who was one of the key people behind the scenes who worked to introduce Toronto audiences to new sounds and to integrate Toronto's audiences. In the 1980s, he was a fixture at the Harbourfront Centre, where he did regular programming as well as hosting the Toronto chapter of WOMAD, the world music festival begun by English rock musician Peter Gabriel in 1980. Karen interviewed Derek a while ago in pre-pandemic times. The following are excerpts from that interview. And the Blues was my ticket to Harbourfront. They called me up and said, hey, we're looking for a, um, a blues festival. As it turns out, Molson's was looking to really invest in the waterfront, and and I got to spend a lot of Molson's dollars mm. uh, doing free concert programming. And because Harbourfront was identifying itself as a open, accessible, culturally diverse, our department was called Community and Special Events, mm. and I developed a ten weekend season in '86 was my first year, and I stayed for 19 years, continuing to do that work specializing eventually in world music and yeah, okay. and the WOMAD festivals for, yeah. in particular the yeah. five editions yeah. were like a master class in developing world yeah. music. Why did Harbourfront do that and would you say that was one of the, mo the first or most significant kind of institutional openings to dive that some idea about diversity in music? 
it was absolutely one of the, the most mainstream venues to de delve yeah. into multicultural programming and, and to properly reflect the true makeup of the yeah. city. And, and there was a pivotal question that, that is linked to the Molson sponsorship, where the sponsorship people actually said to me, so we're at, we need to tell the Molson's people whether this is something, before we actually did a Walmart Festival, is this something that they are going to want to be associated with? And, you know, this is the year before, 87, and we didn't know really what world music was or where yeah, it was going to yeah. go. And I, my, my hunch was that they really should be there because it, it really reflected Toronto. And sure, they could promote, you know, rock bands and, and you know, rodeos or whatever macho yeah, thing yeah. that historically yeah. had been associated with the beer company. But if they wanted to get hip, they needed to touch the nerve yeah. of the city. So yeah. there's a more elaborate answer yeah. on that, that yeah. pivot. But I, yeah. I got a real education, and, and in the 10 weekends, we had different themes. So uh, we actually, before we did WOMAD, we did a Latin program, Mondo Latino. And that was just out of witnessing the emergence of the local cover bands, the Fantasia and Onda Latina, and different, yeah. different groups that were, were doing salsa covers you know, cumbia, merengue, and, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and regular salsa for dance and, and dances and soccer clubs. And I was going up to Jane Finch to see major touring artists promoted by Latin promoters and then finding the local bands opening mm -hmm. for them. Derek Andrews' philosophy is broad-minded and his musical tastes are eclectic. If you want to promote to cultural communities, he told us, you need to speak their language, respect their cultural norms, and go to them. So there was a lot that we learned in the 80s and 90s on how to do that. Toronto is packed. All these people come here. How do you reach them? In the late 80s and 90s, most marketing looked pretty white, and ours did not. Like many Canadians, Derek visited Cuba first as a tourist in 1975. He developed networks among Cuban musicians there. At the Harborfront Centre, he produced a concert for Cuba's well-known trova singer, Sarah Gonzalez, at the Outdoor Ship Deck Gallery. Sarah had come to Canada first in 1981, a guest of the political solidarity community through the Canada-Cuba Friendship Association. She performed in cafes, at the Centre for Spanish-Speaking Peoples, as well as at Central Tech, a downtown high school, where she drew a crowd of 600. A few years later, her appearance at Harborfront's more mainstream venue was, as Derek recalls, a bit of a flop, but it led him to believe that an audience for Cuban and Latin American music could be developed at Harborfront. The next year, he booked U.S. salsa musician Willie Colon, who drew thousands of people, and this opened Harborfront's doors to the Latino community. Soon, he was collaborating with the International Hispanic Fiesta, an annual event that took place at Exhibition Place. But even in Canada, Cold War cat-and-mouse politics between Cuba and the U.S. intervened. The International Hispanic Fiesta's board of directors included Leon Bacardi of the Rum family, which had a long-standing dispute with the Cuban government. So the Hispanic Fiesta observed a strict no-Cuba policy for their Toronto event, a position which was reversed a few years later when Leon Bacardi left the board. Then Harborfront started bringing in the big Cuban guns.
I was bringing Cubans in my Caribbean program, right. I was bringing my world music program. Yeah. So yeah. wherever, and, and the Ramiro Puerto fits into this uh, significantly because he, he was from Bogota and uh, had an orchestra, was doing gigs at the Bamboo Club, but was an astute uh, observer of Hispanic culture as it was developing. We only traveled to Latin America once together, and that was to Cartagena for mm -hmm. a festival where we saw some Cuban music, but in general I was getting a, a broad education of Latin, Latin music and where, what, would, what would work and with microing in on, on Cuba all along, just you know, one group after another every year, eventually getting to Iliada Sachoa just before Buena Vista yeah, broke, yeah. Uh, dropping them on the Caravana weekend on a Saturday night and having a big success, lots of good press, and being ahead of the curve in a way. But that, those, those <coughs> successes continued with Anahela Banda and Isaac Delgado and the big names uh, coming one after another every year and, and, and satisfying the appetite of the Toronto Latin community yeah, yeah. as it was maturing and, and getting more sophisticated. To what extent was your audience the Toronto Latino community and to what extent was it others? Well, that's the beauty of Harborfront because it's both. Um, the informed Latino population who really showed up at the Willie Cologne and that told us there was a, there was a way to bring uh, people from the banquet halls in, in the Northwest or whatever, you know, yeah. banquet hall. There were, there were shows at the Harbor Castle uh, venue as well. Their banquet hall was home to like thousands of people. Yeah. I think I saw Johnny Ventura there from Dominican Republic, Oscar de Leon. And, and those were inside the community, not crossover concerts. That, yeah. that I was observing others, I was learning like who, right. who the names were, what, yeah, who, yeah, yeah. who appealed to. And, yeah. and in the best case scenario, we had the budgets to match those, those right. uh, bookings because of the Molson subsidy. So I could spend ten, twenty thousand dollars on on an act. Yeah. No problem because yeah. uh, that's what we would spend on a, on a pop act or a yeah. folk act or a jazz yeah. act, yeah. you yeah. know, yeah. for an attraction. And and in fact, when I brought Lissandra Mesa from Colombia, Vainato accordionist, who was like the top Colombian attraction, very rootsy appeal, I did it in partnership with a Colombian coke dealer who was like the, he was the guy. He was mm. he was mm. doing all the shows, and you know he wasn't he wasn't a coke dealer to us. He was a promoter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we yeah. knew his he had a side yeah. business, yeah. and uh, and that was just the reality of the Colombian music yeah. Yeah, culture. Yeah. Vince Macarone came to Toronto from his hometown in Sudbury in the early 1980s and got a job working with Derek at Harborfront. He's also a musician who plays the drums and leads a fusion group called Los Variants. He recently completed an MA thesis at York University on the history of the WOMAD Festival and world music in Toronto. Here's how he describes the 1980s perfect storm of beer wars, migration, and Harborfront the beer wars. So the two giant beer companies of the time, Molson and Labatt, were, you know, falling over each other to sponsor things, trying to one-up the other. So there was a lot of corporate sponsorship going on back then. And even tobacco companies were sponsoring uh, artistic events. I mean, that's not allowed anymore, but at the time it was. 
So Derek was in the right place at the right time. So we have the venue, which is right on Lake Ontario, beautiful. Uh, Molson funded Derek's Molson stage. And he had, again, uh, a lot of latitude to book whoever he wanted. They trusted him. He now had the corporate financial back backing. So he was able to start hiring bands from out of town. So we have the beer wars happening. We have immigration of a Caribbean. Immigration was happening sort of in the early 80s from Jamaica, Trinidad and so on. So that informed sort of the music that was uh, coming into Toronto as well. We had Derek's license to book whoever he wanted. And yeah, it all, it all added up to be the perfect storm. Vince believes that Harborfront and the WOMAD festivals played a crucial role in developing a diverse musical audience in Toronto. I think initially it probably was each group came to support their own, the artists that they knew from their country. Then a trust was built and developed, I think, and Derek expounds on this in the interview, in that maybe they came once to see, you know, a, a, the Pakistani crowd came to see a famous singer and looked around and thought, wow, everybody, I, I'm shocked that people know about our singer. And it, it created enough curiosity to maybe a curiosity of the exotic that everybody feels once in a while. And they came back to just see any acts. And he noticed, and so did I at the time, I mean, it was a very diverse crowd. And there was bands from all over the world, but it, it you know, and their core supporters were there, but so were people from every ethnicity. So I think a trust was developed about that site, about that it was safe, about that it was so interesting for me. I had never experienced that. I'm from a small town in Northern Ontario, and I just thought it was unbelievable that no matter who was playing, it was quite full, and there were people from all over the world listening to each other's music. The other name that looms large as someone who helped to create a world music presence in Toronto is Billy Bryans. Billy was a powerhouse, a producer, promoter, and musician all at once. He is best known for playing drums with Parachute Club, a group which exploded on the Canadian music scene in 1982. Billy, who died in 2014, was also a huge fan of Cuban music. Nick Jennings is one of Canada's best-known music journalists. He spoke to us about the beginnings of world music in Toronto and his friend Billy Bryans. World music, to use that horrible term, but, you know, it was what it was called. First came into, I became aware of it for the first time, I suppose, like other people did, and through the, you know, the African music, primarily, that was being uh, signed by major labels and uh, like Island Records and, you know, King Sunny A Day and artists like that who were getting exposure here in Canada. And I was writing for McLean's magazine. You know, I, I, I just, I think my ears were ready for something like new rhythms, something more interesting than just regular, you know, Western pop music. I mean, I, I, I should say that I made my first trip to Cuba in 1978 and uh you know so i i certainly heard i was i was aware of cuban music and had heard it and and liked what i heard but in toronto i didn't hear that much latin music until later and i would say that would be probably in the the early 90s 
uh, maybe the late 80s. My first uh, awareness of local world music, I suppose, came um, from the Bamboo Club. And, uh, you know, I knew, I knew Billy Bryans through his involvement with the band Parachute Club. And Parachute Club was, of course, uh, a very adventurous pop group that was mixing Caribbean and African rhythms. I wouldn't say so much Latin rhythms, but it was clear that Billy Bryans, the drummer, was, uh, you know, he was the, he had his receptors up and he was receiving influences from whatever, you know, that whatever he, that grabbed his ears, like anything rhythmic, I would say. So it was, I think it was natural that Billy became a conduit for a lot of African and Latin music. So, you know, I was basically like a lot of people who was discovering these musics at that time, which was, I was very passionate for it, but it was hard to find. One of the things that Billy Bryans did that was really, really important was he put together a compilation of different artists from around Canada. And they were basically from all cultures, but it was basically music that would be considered outside the, at that time, outside the Canadian pop mainstream. And the compilation was called The Gathering. It was, it was a very, very important collection of Canadian-based artists. It's fitting that it, it should win the first Juno Award in what was then called the, I think it was called the, the Global Music or maybe World Music category. Anyway, you know, that was, like I say, not surprising from my perspective that Billy was at the center of that. He produced it, he compiled it, he worked with the artists. And it wasn't long after that that then Billy started producing whole albums by some of these artists. And I remember them all. I mean, he was uh, right in the forefront of this. So Diego Marilanda, Shago Band, a Somalian group. Lorraine Segato was a founder and lead vocalist of Parachute Club. She was in Toronto in the early 80s, also ready for new sounds. We had many, many what we call almost ethnomusicologist friends who were traveling to Africa, who were traveling uh, to South America, to Nicaragua, and uh, all of these places. And, and because of the politics of the time as well, you know, that, that fueled that interest in that kind of travel. So they were coming back with all of this music, this amazing African music, this amazing music from South America, and um, all of those things. And we started listening to that music um, and meeting, for instance, because of the waves of Caribbean immigrants, we started to meet so many Jamaican and Trinidadian performers who um, we became friends with and who taught us how to play authentically, you know, who sort of were in fact schooling us on what their music was in the 80s. That, that was an interesting moment. You had like a lot of things coming in from all of these different areas that then created this explosion and fascination with what later became world music. And certainly as a, as a white a group of really white people <laughs> who were like so deeply influenced by all of this music from all over the world, we couldn't figure out where to place ourselves, <laughs> except for politically, that was very easy, you know. And the music that we loved could be traced right back to our political social justice roots. Lorraine Segaro really emphasizes the importance of Toronto's emerging Latin American migrant population. The early Latin music that was inspiring to us came very much from 
records that we were listening to, like Eddie Palmieri and Tito Puente and all of it, Gilberto Gil, you know, like where we could get that influence. But it also came vis-a-vis -vis the immigrants that were coming from El Salvador and Nicaragua and, and all of these other places, you know, who are coming up here and playing in bands with all of us, you know, interchangeably teaching us and also showing us with their own music. This was not music that we were listening to coming from all of these different countries and getting it from all of these countries. It was people coming here who were playing that, you know, their authentic roots music. And that, and that was primarily because of the bamboo. The bamboo was a Queen Street West fixture, a bar restaurant that offered up Caribbean and Thai food and an eclectic musical menu, wildly decorated in an over-the-top island aesthetic. It was home to Toronto's many reggae bands, a musical genre which flourished in the 1980s as the city's Jamaican population grew. I know that as a venue, the, one of the most important venues was the, the Bamboo. The Bamboo was a world music venue. It started as a booze can in the late 70s and then became a sort of authentic club, you know, like a legit club. And it was actually the place where we as a band, the Barishu Club, opened the very first night of the Bamboo. And from that point forward, it was all manner of reggae bands, the Satellites and, and Memo Acevedo. All of the bands that were in town finally had a place where they could play. The Queen Street Strip, anchored by the Bamboo, was the home for many artists and musicians from all over the world. This was where Billy Bryans found the music and some of the musicians he would work with and promote. The 80s was a time when there was a recession in the early 80s. The way the culture grew on Queen Street and later on was that because of the recession, the rents were cheap and that's why all the artists moved there, including all of the immigrant artists that could find sort of warehouse spaces and or whatever. So then you, ha then you had people intersecting with each other and teaching each other how to play, you know, and sort of also going up and down. Like Billy used to have this thing that we used to say, which is Billy would just roll his drum set up, up, and, <laughs> up and down Queen Street because he'd go from all of these different venues, from the Rex to the Cabana Room, to the Horseshoe, to the Rivoli, to the, <laughs> you know, to, to the Bamboo, to the Ca Cameron Public House. Like he'd have like five or six different gigs in one night and one would be an art band and another one would be someone he had made friends with that he was producing some you know alternative and then another would be our band or something with Moja you know or Terry Wilkins or any of the people that were in our circle at the time Lillian Allen Nick Jennings remembers Billy as a passionate promoter of world and Cuban music Billy played a key role in helping to promote the music by starting up the Mundial Music Pool, the DJ pool. So that was a pool where he, there would be regular meetings and he would have journalists and DJs um, come and he would play various recordings that were new that had been provided to him by both major labels and indie labels in the hopes of getting DJs to spin these, these records or journalists to write about them. So Billy became a, a pretty passionate booster and promoter of that music very early on. 
Billy helped numerous newly arrived Latin American artists get their footing in Canada. From Cuba, Tomari Diaz and Alex Huba are two examples, along with others. In this, he was joined by Canadian musician Jane Bennett, who was also performing with Cuban musicians in Canada and in Cuba and inviting several to Canada. Obviously, it should be stressed that Jane Bennett played a huge role. Spirits of Havana album came out in 1993, uh, won the Juno Award. That was the second Juno Award in the global world beat category, I guess it was called. And, and you know, Jane Bennett, and one could do a whole podcast about the role of Jane Bennett in Cuban music in Canada, because she certainly popularized it and began bringing Cuban um, artists to Toronto as did Billy, uh, I think, a little bit later. Well, I, 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 I just remember that Billy calling me up, as he often did, and said, Nick, you've got to hear this, this artist I'm working with. And he was, he was Billy was very uh, persuasive. And he was, I think his passion really was one of his best, his best tools. I mean, for getting, for getting people to, uh, getting people's attention. I mean, so I, I knew that he was excited about her. I mean, basically every artist that Billy worked with, he was talking about constantly and, you know, playing playing myself and others their music and, and inviting us to come out and hear them. That was that was the case with Telmari. That was the case with Amai Kuda, Diego Marilanda, and then the Puentes brothers. I mean, all of these artists, he, he was, uh, and, and, and I, I think one of the last artists he worked with, a Latino uh, performer, Laura Fernandez. I mean, again, that was, I, I distinctly remember uh, phone ringing and, you know, it was Billy and, and that was one of the last artists, I think it was probably the last artist I heard him, you know, enthusing to me about, you know, and he produced her, her that record for her. So his work with them, I would say, was just, he really cared. I mean, he really cared about helping them get their sound right. Um, he brought all of his production experience to those projects. And I think he really was not only a great producer, but he was a great promoter for, 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 for these artists. I mean, after uh, Alex Cuba uh, went solo, I don't know exactly what Billy's role with him was, whether it was a an actual uh, promotion role or whatever, uh, but Billy was remained highly supportive and enthusiastic about Alex Cuba. And so, you know, Alex Cuba's first solo album, Billy was, was certainly telling everyone who would listen about this, you know, very talented artist. But yeah, it was the, the Puentes brothers that were the first for me. Uh, my first introduction to Alex was through that, that recording that Billy worked, worked on. Lorraine Segaro also recognized Billy's passion for Cuban musicians in Canada. He had a tremendous amount of faith in Alex Cuba and in Telma. You know, he just loved them to death and was always, that became, it's interesting because Billy, whereas in the early days, Billy's interest in world music was focused on African music and the percussion piece of it. Like he picked up playing the timbales because of, Tito Puente and, you know, what he was hearing, what we, we were listening to in the 80s, right? And then he kind of zoned in and then he did work with indigenous people as well. But then he zoned in on Cuba and Cuba was his thing and his passion right up until the time of his death. 
And, you know, I inherited his collection, right? And gave it to CIUT, uh, CIUT. It was like an amazing collection of Cuban music that was quite extraordinary. So that became his passion. Temari is a very popular artist from Havana. Her music draws from spoken word and Afro-Cuban culture. However, her art defies classification. She certainly has a unique style and is well known in Cuba and abroad for her feminist anthems and her contributions to Cuban hip-hop. Temari lived in Canada between 2007 and 2012, the year that Billy died. What follows is a clip from an interview that Karen did with Tamari in Havana in 2014. And I stay in Canada also because I met Billy Bryant. This is very important mm -hmm. part in this year. Yes, like yes. I won't make it if, yes. I, if it wasn't because I found yes. yeah, I knew that. someone that believed in me and I say, okay, you know, I'm gonna support you, I'm gonna get you gigs, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna help you. Yeah. So stay here, yeah. try to get your papers and everything, and then you come back to Cuba. Cuba is gonna be there always. Yeah. Like you have to be free, you have to find a way to be yeah. free that you don't depend on another person, yeah. 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 you know, of, yeah. of a ministry yeah. to yeah. get out of your, you yeah. know, and do your gigs, because yeah. it's not that I wanna go, I wanna go, I wanna come back. I yeah. just need to get out. Yeah. So that's how I ended up in Canada. Our conversations with Derek, Vince, Nick, Lorraine, and Telmari for part one of this episode gave us a sense of why Billy Bryan's Jane Bennett and other Canadian artists and promoters became so passionate about Cuban music. It is warm, flavorful music that communicates a sense of community like very few others can. A defining element that reinforces this feeling is its polyrhythmic nature. To illustrate with an example, Nick Jennings traces Billy's love for Cuban music directly from his drum set. became such a, a lover of Cuban music and a, a promoter and an aficionado of Cuban music. It's because, you know, he's a drummer. He's a, he was, you know, he was a drummer at heart. I don't have to tell you, I mean, Cuba is like the, uh, has, it's the deepest reservoir of rhythm in the world. So for a drummer, it's, it's, it's heaven. And I think when Billy went to Cuba, he just dove as deep into those rhythms as he could. You know, it really, really spoke to him. Looking back on this era of music in Canada, it's hard to remember just how new to Canadian airwaves and clubs these sounds were. This is how Lorraine Segato reflects on what Parachute Club helped to do in Canada. We never expected to get a record deal. Because, you know, because of these influences that we had, we love reggae music and African music and Latin music and all this stuff. And we were like taking it and mooshing it in a big pot. And because we understood also, we understood pop music because it was all around us. So we mooshed it all together into this huge stew. And then we did had these pop melodies on top of it. And the thing that happened was, is that 
It just turned out that the first single we put out actually become a number one single across the country. And that single was based on a soca beat, you know, like that, the drums on that, that was a soca beat that we had gone and studied, you know, in Trinidad and all of that with Moja and everything. And so when we were touring across the country, we were always talking to the radio programmers, but you know, you, they're like, where did you get all these influences? And we'd tell them and they'd go, and we'd say, and you're not playing Bob Marley and you're not playing any of this, you're not playing any of the music that has influenced this band on your radio station at all. Because you're barely playing even black music, you know, except for maybe like Detroit Motown or something, but you know, there was nothing. So we would have to, across the country, we were making this, this, this thing across the country, trying to explain to people, this is where this music came from. And this is where we came from. And these are all the influences that came came into this city, but this is where the origins of this music are, right? I gotta say, you know, the level of racism that existed in the music business at that point, I'm sure it's still there, but I mean, was so intense that we spent more time fending off these inquiries of, you know, well, it's not really reggae music because you're right, but these are our influences and you don't pay attention to these people who have created these influences, right? So how but the crazy thing is the audience loved what we were doing because radio at that time was dominated by if it wasn't blues music it was rock and roll boys bands with headbands and women were not on the stage at all and we had four women who played instruments pretty well you know so we were like this anomaly that sort of because of all of these um, traces of uniqueness played really well across the country. Mind you, we were never accepted by the mainstream music industry, but we were completely uh, taken in by the audiences in Canada that were just so ready for a change. And I gotta say, you know, I, I remember Billy saying to me is like those early days were really hard because of our politics and and what we were trying to do with our music but billy used to say to me like we are cutting a path for others to follow you know where this authentic music will come behind us the people who actually you know come from these places will come behind us and so we have to do this this way we made that pact together he and i to go, okay, so we'll put up with all this bullshit so that all these other things can happen after. Well, at least now they're playing Bob Marley on the radio, but you know, I don't know. Boys Club, Mama. 
enjoyed the first part of this episode, Cuban Music Without Cubans, Cuban Sounds in 1980s and 90s Toronto. Stay tuned for the second part and for other episodes of Cuban Serenade where we'll continue exploring the history of Cuban music in Canada. In the second part of this episode, we'll hear more from Nick Jennings and Lorraine Segato and feature a special guest, one of the founders of a San Montuno band that ignited the dance floor every Friday night at a College Street pub in 1990s Toronto. As you're probably guessing, they did it without Cubans, at least in the early stages. Hasta pronto.